Well, the foundation and bedrock of any communion and fellowship we have with each other as believers horizontally is because of the communion and fellowship we have with the triune God vertically. We are united around and in the truth. We hope together in the truth. We are resolved to be faithful to, to follow and proclaim the truth from the pulpit to private counseling sessions, from youth group to street evangelism, wherever we are found. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the source of the truth, the living word. And when understood correctly, we know that this truth is worth more than our very lives as countless martyrs have demonstrated before us. Following this truth, we are told, will result in standing out, will result in persecution. Perhaps some of you here today are from nations where you can testify to that. You have a lot to teach those of us from more comfortable places with our wood-lined country club-style churches. I fear we've become drowsy. As we begin, I want to tell you about two men. First, Jonathan Edwards. As you no doubt know, he was removed from his church for proclaiming and standing for the truth. They broke fellowship. They broke communion because they weren't united with their pastor around the truth. It took some time to be revealed. They weren't on the same page. In the years before that happened, of course, he was used mightily of God across the northeast of the USA, not least during the 1730s and 1740s. But going another step backwards to his, his youth is critical to understand why. Around the ages of 19 or 20, you see, Edwards wrote something remarkable. He was finishing his education at Yale, and, and he was preparing for ministry, perhaps like you. He was on the watershed, the threshold of moving from education to the world of work and service and ministry. And he sat down and he penned 70 statements, 70 resolutions, 1722, 1723, kind of his own personal mission statement based on scriptural principles, guidelines, advice to himself, reminders. How should I live? How can I thrive spiritually? How can I set goals to use my life for my Savior and honor Him in everything I do? Full reliance upon God. How can I not be mediocre in my personal Christian life and in my ministry? He wrote in his notes that he should read these resolutions once a week. He took them seriously. Let me give you just five of the 70. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good. Number three, resolved, if I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all that I can remember when I come to myself again. 28, resolved, to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly and frequently, frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Number 30, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace 
than I was the week before. And finally, 56. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I wonder, do you have anything of that seriousness or determination in your personal walk with God? You see, as pastors, you will set the tone in the church that you lead. Whether or not your communion and fellowship have roots that go deep. That was the first man. Now I want us to turn to another man in another generation that God used remarkably as a means of great blessing to others, leading by example, building the fellowship and communion of the people around the truth. The man is Ezra. Look with me at the passage we read in Ezra chapter 7. Before we look at Ezra specifically, I want to compare and contrast him with the generations before that that did not follow God in the same way. Here's our first and briefest of just two points this morning. First, using the example of the people of Israel and and Judah. Point number one, unfaithfulness to God's word. Unfaithfulness to God's word. Let me remind you of the time before and events surrounding the life of Ezra. The very beginning of our reading, it referred to the context. Now after these things, pointing us backwards. This book is alongside that of Nehemiah. We don't know for sure who wrote these accounts or exactly when they were written. We know they were contemporaries as God brought a formerly rebellious people back to the promised land. Ezra came back to Jerusalem 13 or so years before Nehemiah did. And this continues the story of the people of God, the people of Israel who had been taken captive in the nation of Babylon. Back in Jeremiah chapter 2, This is 14 through 25 and other places. God had clearly warned that if the people broke the covenant, the agreement, that another nation would make them into slaves. Sadly, they did. They'd abandoned, even renounced their beliefs in their God. Verse 17 in that passage. Whose fault is this? Hast thou not procured this unto thyself? In that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way. And even though gracious God warned them over and over through the prophets, they became unfaithful. That's where the Assyrians and the Babylonians come into the, into the picture. You remember how Nebuchadnezzar, around 605 BC, took the, the cream of the, the people to Babylon over a period of time. Daniel, Ezekiel. Then Jerusalem was invaded, the temple destroyed, the contents taken away. Seventy years in captivity. And during that whole period, the people of Israel were not able to worship God as as he had commanded in his temple. But then in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, it says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, listen, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. 
And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be, to be carried away captive. And so at the end of Second Chronicles, we find a decree, a binding order or declaration by Cyrus, king of Persia. He defeated the Babylonians. Somehow, the Israelites found some favor in the eyes of this king. Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah 44, 28. Very specifically, it says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. It's remarkable that that was written with a name, specific name, 150 years before it happened. And it shows us once again that nations and kings rise and fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The Babylonians had taken the people captive. They were the superpower of the area, but not anymore. They'd come crashing down, and now, now Cyrus, king of Persia, is in power. And God uses him. God works through him. My friends, God always remains faithful to his people. Whatever the threat, any generation. And here, he's the one who brings restoration 70 years later. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 explained, explains what happens. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is what we call the post-exilic period beginning after the exile. This horrible period is finally coming to the end. The dawn is here, but it, it's slow. It's slow in coming to reality. Perhaps from their perspective. The decree was given around 539 BC and the people were moving back into the land, rejoining the, the remnant who'd stayed there. Perhaps you remember Zerubbabel brings that first group in those first two chapters of Ezra. No king yet. The exiles bring things with them to rebuild the temple. And that's important, of course. But we know that God wants more than burnt sacrifices. He wants the heart of, the worship of, the devotion of the people. That's the most important rebuilding that needs to take place here. He's not interested in returning to the same as before the exile was a punishment and should be sent should send a real message to the people who apostatized who turned away from God in that previous generation despite all those warnings beforehand remains an illustration to us in our nation and nations and churches and personal lives don't drift from God be resolved not to be resolved rather to set your heart in the word of God and grow closer and deeper in your worship and devotion and communion and fellowship as we travel together to the celestial city. But if you do fall away and are taken to a foreign land, so to speak, you're warned that it 
it will be destructive. It will. It's awful. But there is hope of restoration if you cry out to God. Chapter 3, they build the altar foundations. They're able to bring sacrifices to God again. Chapter 4, in Ezra, they stop because of the Samaritans opposing them until chapters 5 and 6 with the help and encouragement of Zechariah and Haggai. It starts once more and it finally finishes, ultimately 23, 24 years to rebuild the temple so they can again celebrate Passover at the end of chapter 6. But you see, much more is still to be done as we enter chapter 7, where we started our reading. And this is where we have a jump forward in time. It's now a generation later, almost 60 years, when Ezra and a new group of immigrants returns to Jerusalem by the command of another ungodly pagan king, Artaxerxes, around 458 BC. So another step in the people of Israel coming back, another step in true worship being instituted fully once again. So I hope you understand now some of the timeline of of what happened, but also why. Why are they in this position? The people of Israel and Judah had turned their backs on God, on the truth. And now this is a process of restoration. They were unfruitful, unfaithful, a bad example, perhaps of people going through the motions, not taking the worship of God and their devotion to Him and His Word seriously. And we, as the people of God, can certainly do that, drifting, wandering, saved perhaps, but in a daze. No resolve to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not earning our salvation, but proving its authenticity. Showing on the electrocardiogram machine that there's a heartbeat. may have been that many of the people at that time were not saved though. Never regenerated. Relying on the fact that they had some blessing as being part of this special people. But no experiential or personal involvement themselves. We see, don't we, in these verses, even in the Old Testament, that faithfulness to God and appropriate worship is no small matter. God is looking for your whole heart, your whole life. Nothing half-hearted, nothing lukewarm. So, firstly, unfaithfulness to God's Word. Now, secondly, faithfulness to God's Word. See that we turn our attention away from the people generally to Ezra specifically. Ezra's name can be translated, Jehovah has helped. He grew up in Babylon, but was a worshipper of the true and living God. Resolved to be equipped and used by him. Some call him another Moses, leading people back into the land. He was a scribe. Those that read and write and keep accurate records often teach an expert in the law, descendant of the high priest, as we read in verse 5, Aaron. Verse 6, it's important to notice a couple of things. He had the authority of the king. But more importantly than that, the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And the text repeats that later in verse 9, verse 28, and then he takes courage in that fact. There he acknowledges the steadfast love of God shown to him. And he is used, you see, to bring reform, to bring revitalization. How? How does he do it? You see, he's determined to bring God's word. 
God's law, to apply it to life. Because what he finds when he comes to the land is intermarrying outside the people of God. He finds idolatry. He finds backsliding. If we glance more broadly than our verses, we we see more about him as well. Later in chapter 7, we're told he has wisdom. He has a mission that's repeated and emphasized in different ways. In multiple places, he wants to teach the commands and decrees of the Lord through chapter 7 through 9. Because he has confidence in the word of God. And he wants to bring that to the people and for that to impact them as it should. But back in our chapter in verses 7 through 9, we we have recorded for us the the four-month trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. Not easy, not without danger. In fact, chapter 8 talks of needing protection on the journey. Some say it was a trek of more than 900 miles. But this is the important thing in verse 9. The good hand of his God was upon him. And verse 10 gives us the reason. It says four. And what I want you to notice here in verse 10 are Ezra's three resolutions. Importantly, you need to notice that they're set in the past tense. For Ezra had prepared or set his heart to, and then come the three resolutions, three things that fit seamlessly together, Firstly, to seek or study the law of the Lord. Secondly, to do it, to practice it. And thirdly, to teach in Israel his statutes and judgments or ordinances. And it's remarkable that Ezra had resolved these three things some time ago. We don't know how long ago, but he still resolved today. That is the moment, sometime in his past, that moment he resolved to understand, to obey, and to lead others in the very same disciplines. That's the moment. That's the start. That's the challenge to us today. There's an order in this text. Seek, do, teach. But they run concurrently as well. He's an example to us in this. But again, it's not a formula to be saved. This is not a way to earn your salvation. Okay, I'll study enough. I'll read my Bible. I'll obey God's commands and then I'll teach others. I'll be saved. No, of course not. No, you find even here in the text that this is not some cold process. But that Ezra's heart is involved experientially. He's trusting his God as he does these things. So here's that first resolution. Our first of three sub-points under, under our second point. Study the word. Study the word. There's nothing new here. Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies it. He's resolved. Resolved. The challenge today is to ask you if you have that same resolve. He's going to consistently study the word of God. It's called the law of the Lord here, referring to the first five books of the Bible, the the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. God's revealed word at that point in the history of the world. And so we can legitimately expand this to all of God's revealed word. Well, we must have the same attitude. This, This scripture that contains the words of eternal life, they're not found anywhere else. You see, the key truth to grasp here is that the source of the law or the revealed word is God himself. The creator and sustainer of the universe giving to us 
his declared word, telling us reality, telling us how to live and die, how to live a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness that pleases him to his glory. My friends, judgment day is coming, and this is the most valuable and urgent resource we have. Priceless. Tells the world not only how to find God and be saved, but how to live for him, how to fight sin, how to be holy and Christ-like. And this word deserves your very best attention. And it's this God that Ezra has a personal relationship with and love for. It's his God. You notice that in the verse. It's this word from his God that he's studying. Not a cold academic study we're looking at here. This is Ezra understanding the personal nature of the truths he's studying. That his and all his people's lives are dependent on this God and his promises. There's hope nowhere else. You know, I go to a number of conferences each year that are filled with professors of theology who see studying this word as a career. But ultimately their fruit shows that they don't believe it's from God. Puritan Samuel Ward, in his book, The Happiness of Practice, said, Of all men, I hold them fools that bend their studies to divinity, not intending to be doers as well as students and preachers. Not much wiser, such as will be professors of religion and not practitioners. Chapter, six, chapter 7 verse 6 tells us that Ezra was well-versed in the scriptures. As a result, he's a ready scribe. You see, studying God's law is wonderful, but it's not enough. My friends, Bible knowledge is no good alone. That takes us to our second sub-point. Practice the word. Practice the word. Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord, therefore he studies and practices it. Not only does he know the law, but it is necessarily going to result in life transformation. How does this apply to my life, my work, my marriage, my education, my church, when I'm alone, when I raise children? It goes on and on. All of the word applies to all of life. Joshua 1.8 shows this too. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. There's the studying. Now listen. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. It's transformative. His heart is not just set on knowing the law, it's set on practicing the law. Thomas Brooks said, to read much and practice nothing is to hunt much and catch nothing. In that word is something habitual, you see, a pattern motivated by love and dedication to your God, to his God. In the case of Ezra, this is submission to God's word. Whatever it says, whatever it commands, it's not making your own interpretation to fit your lifestyle. This is not looking for loopholes or out of context proof text to justify your sin. Listen, I work in Christian publishing. I can assure you that you can find books to agree with your disobedience and sin. You can find articles and bloggers that will help you to justify to justify it, that pretend to be biblical, but they're not. Some people are desperate to find anything to scratch that itch. It's not the attitude of Ezra. 
He has the attitude of finding what his God says, not arguing with it, but then putting that and only that into practice. This is action coming out of the study. Trusting in the sufficiency and authority and inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Obedience to God's word is evidence of the position of Ezra's heart and your heart. We obey because we love. It's an outflow of salvation. Thirdly and finally, teach the word. Teach the word. Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies and practices and teaches it. You remember that it's not just a physical rebuilding taking place during this period. It's a spiritual rebuilding of the people. If you like, there are two foundations being built simultaneously here. The foundation of the temple and the city, but more importantly, the foundation in each of their hearts. And without that greater foundation, there's no point building the strongest man-made city or the fanciest temple you can imagine. Out of the overflow of a heart filled with Christ, God works. People can tell if you're close to Christ, you know. They should be able to see your love for him. They should notice no disconnect in your witness between what you claim to believe and how you practice. These truths you see must influence the way you act and think and speak in every sphere of your life. And it's out of that overflow that you can influence and teach and witness to others. Sadly, some lose resolve and cave to the pressure of their generation. Bodhi Borkham says, I will not violate the teaching of the text in order to somehow sound more appropriate for the culture. Sadly, some people in churches are teaching when they're not studying or practicing. Some people have a talent to wing it. Did you notice how Ezra's character is mentioned before the fact that he teaches these truths? Practicing the truth comes before teaching the truth. There should be no disconnect. No place for hypocrisy. Ezra knows that his people need to be brought back to this only fountain that refreshes and satisfies the thirst. They need renewal in the same way that the city needs renewal. And he's sent to restore the rightful position of the word of God among the people. But in other places like Nehemiah 8 verse 7, he talks of others who are contributing to this same process. It's not just him. There's somewhat of a team here. And he praises them. You see, he believes what he's teaching. He's invested in it. And if you were to turn to Nehemiah 8, you'd see how he opens up and explains God's word, the law, and teaches at the water gate. He brings understanding. He and others bring the word. The people listen in communion and fellowship together, and it results in corporate worship. My friends, Ezra is resolved to study practice and teach and it starts in private and then has the potential to become more and more public personal devotion personal spirituality is so important as a basis in the life that honors God wherever you have the solemn yet joyful responsibility of explaining God's word follow the example of our, our dear brother Ezra Puritan Joseph Hall brings study, practice, and teaching together when he says, 
Those that are all in exhortation, no wit in doctrine, are like them that snuff the candle, but pour not in oil. Again, those that are all in doctrine, nothing in exhortation, drown the wick in oil, but light it not, making it fit for use, if it had fire put to it. But as it is, rather capable of good than profitable in present, doctrine without exhortation makes men all brain, no heart. Exhortation without doctrine makes the heart full, leaves the brain empty. Both together make a man. One makes a man wise, the other good. One serves that we may know our duty, the other that we, we may perform it. I will labor in both, but I know not in whether more. Men cannot practice unless they know, and they know in vain if they practice not. Ezra's heart has been and remains set or resolved on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies, he practices, he teaches. What a contrast he is to those in the previous generation. Let's round up our thoughts. You need to understand that this event is setting the scene for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The people are now moving back into the promised land. We're only four or five hundred years away from Christ being born in Bethlehem. Which could not have happened without this repatriation of God's people. But of course, a gracious and sovereign God is in control. But you notice what was fixed first, the temple. Worship was restored. Ezra understands God's holiness and how his people should reflect that. Dependence on God is, is first, not man-built defenses. The walls come later. Of course, this very temple we read of here lasted to the time of Christ and slightly beyond. Pointing to that time when no more sacrifices would be needed at that temple. Because the once and for all sacrifice of the sinless Savior was infallibly scheduled. Now we know the temple and all the sacrifices, of course, are no longer needed because of Christ's finished work. And Jesus is the king above all kings, reigning from an eternal, unending throne. You see, his kingdom will never be shaken by a foreign power. His people will never be exiled again. I ask you, are you part of that people today? If you are, are you a healthy soldier? Are you spiritually fit and fruitful and faithful, studying, practicing, teaching, spreading the word of God? My friends, Ezra brings us a picture of spiritual renewal in this account. Jerusalem was ruined. The people were backslidden, but restoration is happening. But you see, God was about to do something amazing and miraculous right there. Right there, just a few centuries later on that very same ground. He was bringing eternal restoration, you see, in and through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the restoration we all need. You know, at the beginning, we looked at Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They show something remarkable. That Edwards knew that whatever he did, whatever he achieved, it was all in absolute dependence on God. In fact, at the very start of all the resolutions, he says this, I am unable to do anything without God's help. Anything you have, anything you achieve, it's all through Christ working in and through you. Edwards carried on that Puritan tradition of bringing all areas of his life under the subjection to his God. 
It's a state of mind in complete dependence, knowing 24-7 that you are living before the very face of God. And so I ask you, I challenge you, what are you resolved to do in your life? Resolved to do? What is your heart set on? What is your heart prepared for? Is it on his word? Is it to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Is it to practice his word and spread his word? Well, I encourage you, like Ezra, to bring yourself, your family, your flock, the abiding truths of God. To then show them that they too need to set their hearts on these life-giving scriptures. Do what they say and then encourage others in the same. Spread. My friends, don't merely set your mind on God's word at seminary. Set your heart on it. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, we come to you so thankful for this living word. So thankful that we have not been left in the dark. We pray, Lord, that as we've considered these truths this morning, that you will apply them to our hearts, that you will change us where we need to be changed, and that you will be glorified through it, and that you will build your kingdom through us, if you so desire. Lord, we trust you and we love you. Help us, God, to study, to practice, and to teach these eternal truths to others. All to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.